You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, it's Leslie Ann. Glad to have you here on the podcast this week. In our Bible study this week, we talked about 1 Samuel chapters 16 through 19 and looked at all the ways that God, in his great mercy, raises up a faithful king to deliver his people from their worst enemies. This lesson corresponds with the material found in week 7 of the Learner Workbook, which starts on page 92. You can download a free workbook from thevillagechurch.net and find out more about our study of 1 Samuel here in Brandon, Mississippi from leslieannjones.com slash king. So up until this point in 1 Samuel, there have been very few bright spots, right? Chapters 1 through 15, like one bad turn after another. We watched in horror as Saul's reign has gone from bad to worse. Like, it never really was good. The people wanted a king like the nations, and that's what they got. Saul was just like the nations. But it turns out that having a king like the nations wasn't all it was cracked up to be. It was not as good as they thought it was going to be. In fact, it was pretty awful. Saul is not only a bad king, but he's a bad man. He's not a good guy at all. He's prideful. He's arrogant. He makes terrible decisions on the fly. He's brash. He can't admit it when he's wrong and all of those things added up together made for a very bad situation for Israel right so he refuses to humble himself before God that's really his undoing is that on top of everything else he will not submit to the Lord and so first Samuel chapter 15 where we ended in the fall that long long time ago ends on a pretty grim note because God had ordered Samuel to destroy the Amalekites including the king, including the livestock and everything, but Saul disobeyed, right? And it's the final straw because Saul spared Agag. And when Samuel arrives, he's horrified at what he sees. Not only does he hear the bleeding of the cows and the sheep and the oxen, but he sees the king of the Amalekites. And he's like, Saul, what have you done? And he has to deliver that devastating news that the kingdom has been ripped from his grasp and given to someone better. Those are his words. It has been given to someone better. And then he does the thing that Saul refused to do, and he picks up an axe, I guess, or a sword. Was it a sword? And he hacks Agag to pieces. Those are the words in the Bible. Fun times. Yay. Right? So when we pick up here in chapter 16, Samuel is still upset, understandably so, not just for what he had to do, but because he misses Saul. He is grieving for the loss of that relationship. He's grieving for the state of the kingdom, for what happens next, for how bad things have gotten. And he, he just does not like the way that things are. And God calls him out on it. But as we'll see, God doesn't leave him there or the people of Israel, no matter that it's what they asked for in their misery. Because God is merciful, right? And this is the theme that we're going to keep circling back to today is that this, this phrase that I've written across the top, that in his mercy, God intervenes in the middle of that mess that they have made for themselves to raise up a faithful king who will deliver his people from their worst enemies. Okay? That is the theme of these verses, that God raises up a faithful king to deliver his people. And through that, we also see that opposition comes, bad things happen to this anointed soon-to-be king, but the Lord abides with and protects him ensuring his continued success for the people's good and for his glory. God does what he does in David's life for the sake of the people of Israel and for his glory. And that's what we're going to come back to throughout 
all these verses is that God's king is different. God's king is better. And we're going to look at the ways that he is, okay? So the first section in chapter 16, we're going to see the Lord providing the faithful king. All right, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, this is a little different than what happened with Saul, right? Samuel, when he talked to them in um, chapter 12, when he's presenting Saul to them as their king, it's supposed to be this joyous celebration. He's like, this is your king that you chose, that you wanted. But this time, it's God's king that God is choosing, right? This new king is going to be different. He's not going to be a king like the nations. He's going to be a king unlike the nations because he's a king of God's own choosing. And that makes the difference. So in verse 2, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So if Saul finds out what Samuel's doing there in Bethlehem, he's going to be furious and Samuel knows it. And he's a little worried about that because the wrath of Saul is not something you want to go against. We've seen that, right? But God provides a cover for Samuel, which is kind of funny. It's a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like just tell him you're going to make a sacrifice. Because isn't that what Saul, wasn't that Saul's excuse? I saved these oxen. I saved the sheep for a sacrifice, right? So Saul uses it for an excuse. And then God tells Samuel to say the same thing. Tell him you're making a sacrifice. He won't know the difference. So this partial truth is okay in God's eyes, I guess, because God's the one who says that Samuel should do it, right? And he goes, and the difference between Samuel and Saul is that Samuel is obedient in this thing. Like, it could cost him his life. It, It is a great personal risk to himself that he goes to Bethlehem, but he trusts the Lord enough to do what he says. And just like he told Saul in chapter 15, God desires obedience more than sacrifice. And that's what he does. He goes to Bethlehem to make the sacrifice and to anoint one of Jesse's sons. So verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So what is it about Eliab that makes Samuel think, hey, this is the one? What's it about him? His stature. He's a tall and handsome. We like the tall people in 1 Samuel. I would do well there. Apparently that's all that matters. You got to be tall, right? Yeah, he was handsome and he was tall. But who else was handsome and tall? Saul. Saul was handsome and tall, okay? So... Samuel should have known that maybe handsome and tall isn't what makes a good king because Saul had those things and he was not a good king. But what does God say to him? And this is, you know, the famous verse from 1 Samuel. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So God says that Samuel and everyone else, everybody else in Israel... They're looking at the wrong things. They're looking in the wrong place. So our tendency as human, it's not, it's not just them. It's us now. Like we get distracted and dazzled by like the pretty people, right? The handsome ones, the what, what things look like on the outside. 
you know, we, especially like if you think about all the fronts that we put on for ourselves, you like you might be screaming at your children in the car before you get to church. <laughs> Just me. <laughs> Just me. But like when you get out, we're all smiles. Everything's fine. No problems here. Okay, so like we who create these illusions about how things look on the outside, right, ought to know that how things look on the outside cannot be trusted, right? It's what's on the inside that matters. And it's a theme for the book of 1 Samuel, right? Because Saul and Eliab apparently looked the part. So if we were movie directors casting the role of the hero king, they were the ones that we would pick. They got the six-pack and, like, the, the Batman muscles, and that's apparently all you need. Right? And they're tall, tall, pretty face. That's all we need. But he looked the part, but he didn't fit the part, right? Saul had all the things on the outside, <clears throat> but he lacked the, the integrity, the courage, the faithfulness, the humility, like all the things that really matter in a good leader, in a good king. He didn't have any of those, right? So the people of Israel didn't need somebody who looked right. They need somebody who was right. And so do we. God's saying here, you, all of us, have a seeing problem. You're looking at the wrong place, and you need to change where you're looking. You need to look on the inside, because that's what matters. So what happens? In verses 8 through 11, one by one, Jesse's sons are paraded before Samuel. And Samuel says, nope, God didn't choose that one. Nope, not that one either. Not that one either. Until they get to the very end. And, you know, Samuel has gone to Bethlehem because God told him, my next king is in Bethlehem. I need you to anoint him. But so far, no, like, signal from God. Yep, that's the one. Nothing. And so Samuel says, is anybody else? I mean, do you have another son? Is there anybody else here? And they're like, oh, yeah, I got one more. He's out there working with the sheep. Because here's the thing. They didn't see David the way that the Lord saw him. They didn't see him as he really was. And he is so unimportant, so insignificant in the eyes of the family, that they didn't even invite him to the sacrifice. Like, they didn't even think, hey, David should be here. We're all here. Oh, where's David? Like, didn't even cross their minds. David should be here. So, like, if they are on a schoolyard and they're picking teams, David is last every single time. I mean, they need him because there's eight sons, right? you got to have even numbers. So you got to have him to at least even things out. But he is never, ever picked. He's always last because they were looking at the wrong thing. They were looking in the wrong place. But God sees him in a way that his family never has. And so you know what happens next, right? We all, this is a familiar story to us. What happens? They go, they get David, and they bring him in. And what does God say? That's the one. That's him. Go ahead. Anoint him, please. We've been waiting for this. So in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Like it's really fast. It's really quick. You know, they wouldn't necessarily have known what this anointing was for. Because even though way back in verse 1, God tells Samuel, I have chosen a king, go and anoint him. There's no indication that Samuel gave that news to the rest of the people who were there. Okay? <coughs> so they just knew that this weird thing happened with David and Samuel, not necessarily knowing the point of it. 
God has a history, though, of making the unexpected choices. Like You don't have to read very far in the Bible to find him upsetting the, I guess, chain of command that you would think is going to happen, right? Jacob is chosen over Esau, Joseph over all of his older brothers, and now David. Okay, so this is what God does. He picks the unexpected to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. And if you remember Hannah's song way back in chapter 2, what does she say? That God exalts the humble and opposes the proud, right? And this is just another example of that. So David isn't necessarily officially proclaimed as king here. It's secret, kind of, in a way, this anointing of David's. But... It's necessary because he's going to need God's help for this in-between time when he has been chosen and before he is officially regarded as Israel's king. Y'all, that doesn't happen until 2 Samuel. Okay, so all of this in-between time, he has been chosen and he has been set apart and he needs God's spirit with him. And so that's what happens. It says in verse 13, um, the end of it, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So God was with him. And it's important, right? If you read the rest of the the chapters this week, over and over again, it says the Lord was with David. The Lord was with him, and so he had success. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. So God is with David from this point forward in a way that he is no longer with Saul because at the same time that the Spirit of the Lord descends on David to equip him, to empower him, to enable him for everything that comes next, the spirit abandons Saul, right? And from that point forward, Saul begins to unravel. He loses his mind one piece at a time, and it's really painful to watch. Like, it's hard. It's like the train wreck that you know is coming, and you can't stop watching. Like, you can't stop it from happening. It's coming, and you can't stop it. So in verse 14, it says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit of the Lord tormented him. How does that make you feel? Yeah, don't know what to do with that. I think I'll just keep reading and pretend like I didn't see that. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of those cases, too, where translations matter. So, I mean, my translation says an evil spirit from the Lord, but some of the other ones that commentaries say are probably more accurate is a harmful spirit. Okay? So I know this whole thing, this evil spirit from the Lord thing, makes us squirm a little bit because it doesn't fit our concept of what God is like. He's good, he's loving, he's kind, he's merciful. Jesus is my best friend. You know, all I need is coffee and Jesus. <laughs> We're good. And so um, this is hard because it doesn't necessarily fit in with what we're, with what our culture majors on when we talk about God, okay? God doesn't send evil on people, right? But we know that he's sovereign. What God does do at times is leave people to their own devices, okay? So he removes the spirit from Saul. And let me just say, like, this is not about salvation. This is not like the spirit left Saul. It's not about that. This is like the spirit was with Saul to enable him to be king, but he's no longer going to be king, and so the spirit has left him in that way, okay? So when he removes that special enabling, empowering spirit from him, he also removes the protection that went along with it, right? And that allows evil to take root in a way that maybe it couldn't before and also maybe it's a way to God for God to show Saul mercy and I know that sounds crazy but think about um, sometimes 
God allows bad things to happen. Think about Job, one prime example, where Satan comes to God and says, hey, can I have him? I want to test him out a little bit. Actually, that's not what he says. God says, how about my servant Job? Have you seen him? Try him. So sometimes God allows the bad things to happen in a way to draw us closer, to strengthen our faith. And that's uncomfortable, especially in this culture where God only blesses us so much. Hashtag blessed, right? We don't hashtag blessed the bad things in our lives, even though in a way God uses them to bless us sometimes. So maybe, perhaps, it's a sign of mercy that God would send this spirit to Saul to bring him to his knees, to drive him to the Lord for help. Now, Saul doesn't do that, but that was his choice. He could have. So regardless of how you handle it, of what you think about this evil spirit or whatever it is that happens, the Bible does not shy away from who is responsible for it. He does not take this hard truth and, like, try to spin it. I mean, over and over again in 1 Samuel, it says, this is from God. God did this to you, Saul. And so regardless of how you understand it or how you feel about it, you need to come to terms with it because there is no question, according to Scripture, that Saul's slow descent into madness is a direct result of the Lord's action. God calls us that. It's not fun to watch, but God is the one who causes it. So what happens? Well, in verses 15 through 23, Saul's servants are like, hey, maybe we should get somebody to come play some music for you. That'll make you feel better. And who do they call? David, right? And it's ironic because David is the one who is brought into the court to serve Saul, and Saul loves him. He's like, oh, you are my best friend. Thank you so much for coming. Please stay with me forever. Don't ever leave. But we know that it's just one more way, really, that God is raising David's status. Just a few verses before, he was a shepherd who was not even worthy of being called to the sacrifice. And then he was anointed, and the Spirit of the Lord is with him. And now he's being called up into the palace to serve the king himself. And that's not something that his brothers or his father would have thought that he was worthy of, even just a few verses before. So it's one more way that God is raising that status and getting him ready for the kingship. Okay? So we see that God has provided a faithful king. In the second section... We see that the Lord's king, who is not technically king yet, but will someday be king, delivers his people. That is what God's king does, is he delivers. So, in the first part of chapter 17, which we all know this story, we've heard it for our whole lives. Micah told me this afternoon, she was looking over my shoulder as I was like, looking back over the lesson, and she's proofreading over my shoulder, telling me everything that I did wrong. And she said, she's nine, so she's learned to type in class because they're going to take their state test with typing. And um, she said, Mommy, did you know mean to put two spaces there? Because, you know, there was a squiggly line. And I was like, I, I did not, actually. But thanks for catching it. Appreciate that. Anyway, she looked over my shoulder, and she was like, I really don't think there's that much to say about David and Goliath. I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> Good to know. No, but she's like, everybody knows that story. Yes, I know, and that's part of the problem, right? We all know the story, and so we're like, I got that one. I know what's going on. Now, I'm not saying that I have some, like, new insight. If I did, you'd need to, like, call me to task. (laughs) Smarter people than me (laughs) have said some of these things before. Okay, so there's war with the Philistines again. 
right? And like the last time that they went out to war, there's a lot of sitting around and waiting for the fighting to begin. Because this time, the Philistines have a champion on their side. And what's happening is the champion's coming forth every day, and he's saying, hey, let's do like a winner-takes-all kind of thing. You fight me, I win the battle, you beat my servants, and we'll be great. Right? But nobody wants to do that. That's what's happening, though, right? So the last time that Philistia and Israel gathered for battle, if you remember, Israel was scared to death because they were highly outnumbered. Like, they could not even begin to compete with the masses of Philistines that had gathered. But also because they were outweaponed. Not a single one of them had a sword or a spear except for Saul and Jonathan. So we've got two swords, two spears. They've got them all. They've got all the rest of them, right? So that's why they were scared last time. So I'm assuming that not much has changed. They still don't have the weapons. They still don't have the armor. They still don't have the numbers. All those things are still true. And on top of all of that, now there's this giant guy (laughs) coming out and taunting them, being like, hey, you want a piece of this? And they're like, no, thanks. I'll just pass on that. And so that's where they are. Now, if, I don't know if your Bible had footnotes or if you had a study Bible or anything to tell you exactly how big Goliath is, right? So he's out there on the field, and he is covered head to toe in armor. Did you notice how much metal they talked about? So much. And the Israelites have none. So he is nine foot, nine inches tall. Here's another tall guy. What do we know about tall guys? In First Samuel, they're not the ones. <laughs> they're not the ones. So he's super tall, which means he's going to lose. We should know that. He doesn't know that, but we should know that, right? His coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. When Michael was looking over my shoulder, I said, that's like carrying a small person. Bigger than you, smaller than me. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in between us, that's what he's wearing, right? And the tip of his spear, I don't know about the shaft of the spear, but just the tip of it is 15 pounds. And his shield is so big that it has its own handler. Like, seriously, somebody's job just to carry the shield. Because Goliath is too busy carrying his person, around his coat of mail and all that, right? So he's, you know, huge. He's got all this armor, and none of the Israelites have any, except for Saul and Jonathan. They're the only ones who have it. So we know, because of chapter 16, that appearances aren't what matters. So even though, by all appearances, the battle should be lost, in 1 Samuel, the opposite is true. The appearances don't matter. So things look super scary. Goliath is huge. He's fierce. But should it have mattered? Okay, so let's look at verse 8. We're going to pick up there. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. Which, by the way, doesn't happen. Um, But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Saul's the tallest guy in Israel, right? So he should have been the champion. I mean, he maybe was not nine foot nine, but when he was chosen as king, what did it tell us? He was head and shoulders above the rest. Literally, that's what the verse said. But he's not going anywhere near the field. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And neither does anyone else. And so Saul has this fear. And this is the kind of leadership 
that the people of Israel have. They're looking to him and he's not stepping up. And so it goes on and on and on for 40 days because Saul won't act. So every day Goliath comes out and he taunts them. And every day everybody runs in fear. Nobody wants to have anything to do with it. So what happens next? Enter David's stage right. So his older brothers have gone out to war with Saul. Presumably Saul didn't need him on the battlefield to play music. So he wasn't invited along. <laughs> he was back in the fields with the shepherd with the shepherds, with the sheep, doing what he did um, when he was at home. But his father sent him to deliver food and supplies to his brothers, so he goes and he finds them. And as soon as he gets there, while they are still talking, Goliath comes out on the field and taunts them again. Same thing, same song, second verse, nothing new. They've all heard it. It's old hat, same thing that's been going on for the past 40 days. But the only thing that's different is that this time, as it says in 1723, David heard him. And when David hears the words of Goliath, he hears something different. He hears Goliath speaking bad about God, defying the God of Israel. Not Saul, not the people of Israel, but God. So let's read verses 24 through 27. It says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men, he says nothing about the rewards, by the way. He is not interested. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Like, what, what's this about a reward? This is about taking away the reproach. You know, this is about defending the honor of the Lord for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. David is the only one there who seems to understand what's really happening, that it's not just Israel's reputation at stake, but God's because the longer that they allow him to go unchecked, the longer it looks like to the rest of the world that Israel doesn't have a God that God won't act on behalf of Israel. So notice what he calls Goliath, this uncircumcised Philistine. He's calling attention to the fact that Philistine, Philistine, that Goliath is not one of God's people. He's calling attention to the fact that he's a pagan, an idol worshiper. And let's go back to last fall. Do you remember what happened to his God when the Ark of the Covenant traveled through their country? What happened? Face down. That's right. The ark travels through Philistia, city to city, um, and Dagon, their god, was literally bowled over, face down on the ground in front of the ark of the covenant, which is the presence of God, right? Not only was he face down, but eventually head chopped off just like Goliath, and arms like everything, right? So David remembers this, but apparently nobody else does. Look what he calls his God, the living God. In David's eyes, his God is alive, whereas Goliath was a statue that has been knocked over and beheaded and rendered useless. So who is he to defy us when we have that God on our side? Our God is alive. We have nothing to fear. So verses 28 through 29 are funny because it's classic sibling rivalry, right? (laughs) 
Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why did you come down, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you came down just to see the battle. And David's like, can I not even speak? I mean, y'all, does this conversation ever happen in your house? <laughs> like, is it on repeat? No. Um, so Eliab tries to stop him. He's like, shut up. What? You're just a kid. What are you doing here? You Stay out of this. This is not for you. Go back. You have nothing to do with this. But what about David? Is he deterred? No. He is undeterred. He goes on in the next verse in 30. He turned away. Like, forget you. I'm not listening to you, Eliab. This is more important. He turns away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You aren't able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So David's words make their way back to Saul. And how does he respond? He's got the same problem that everybody else does, right? He judges David based on his outward appearance. He barely even casts a glance at him before deciding that he doesn't stand a chance. And he tells him so. But what does David say in return? Verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, okay, and struck him, that's brave, and delivered it out of his mouth. I mean, I'm just saying that if you have gone against a lion or a bear and come out on top, I want you on my team. So take note, next time you go to battle with a lion or bear, let me know you are on my side forever. Right, so he says this, and then he says, and if you arose against me, like if he fought back, if the lion fought back, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Y'all, I don't care how little you are. When... God has brought you through circumstances as terrifying as going hand-to-hand combat with a lion and a bear. That'll do something to your faith. It did something to David's because he was completely confident in God's ability to save him. Not just him, but all of Israel. Not just from Goliath, but from the whole army. Because he had personally experienced God's salvation and knew that God had always been faithful to him in the past. So why would he stop being faithful now? So Saul decks David out in his armor, right? Verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor. Ironic much? Like he literally takes the king's armor and puts it on the future king. But interesting, Saul's armor is like the world, right? Because nobody else in Israel has this armor, the Philistine armor, Philistine army has armor, but not God's people. So David puts it on. He's like, I can't wear this. This doesn't fit me. And so for him, the armor is not a help. It's a hindrance. He, he can't wear it. Um, so David doesn't want to have anything to do with it. It's too heavy and, he, and cumbersome. He can hardly move in it. So he's like, nope, no thanks. I'll just get some stones from 
the stream. I'll be good. Preach. <laughs> Heading out. And so that's what he does. He gathers the stones and he steps out onto the field. Okay? So verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. So here's Goliath, and what does he do? He makes the same mistake. He judges David based on his outward appearance again. But he gets to find out the hard way that judging by the outward appearance is the wrong way of doing things. So let's listen to how David responds to Goliath. He is completely undaunted, again, full of faith. Verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. We don't talk about this part in Sunday school with the kids, by the way. We, like, skip these verses. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that's the point. So that everybody can see how powerful and mighty our God is. And that all this assembly, not just that the world may know, but so that we will know. So that my army back there that's quaking in their boots, so that they will know what their God is like. That the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. So why does David fight? To defend God's glory. It's not about him. It's not about collecting the rewards that Saul has promised. But it's said that the world will know that there's a God in Israel. Because the way things have been going throughout Saul's reign, they're probably starting to wonder. By all appearances, there was not a God in Israel. But what have we learned about appearances? They're deceiving, right? There is a God in Israel. This battle is his to win for his glory, for his reputation, and for the good of his people. So, verse 48 to 51, we know what happens here. The Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword. Can you imagine how big it was, by the way? A sword for a nine-foot-nine guy? Like, huge. Especially if David was as little as everybody seems to think he is. So he goes and he takes Goliath's sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So it's a little anticlimactic, right? Because there's all this talk. There's all this build-up, 40 days of back and forth. And there's, like, it's over before it starts. Like, what was that boxing match years ago? Like, there was a big one, right? I'm not just making this up. There was, like, this huge match. People had paid to watch it on HBO and all this kind of stuff and, like, knocked him out first punch. And everybody was like, if not, I just made up a really good illustration. (laughs) I'm just saying. Right, so the battle is over before it even begins. Um, David rushes, he cuts off the head like it's done, right? But Goliath had promised that Philistine, Philistia, y'all know I can't say that this whole time, Philistia, the people 
the Philistines would be their servants, but that's not what happens, right? They run. They don't serve Israel like Goliath claimed they would. They run. But what does Israel do? How does Israel respond to, to what has happened, to the victory? They give chase, right? So they're emboldened by the success. They gather courage from the victory of the king, right? And they run them down. They plunder the camp. It says in verse um, 52, the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing them and they plundered their camp. And oh, by the way, David took the head of the Philistine and brought him to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Okay. So after all of this, the story ends with this random little conversation in verses 55 through 58 between Saul and Abner about who David's father is, which seems a little random since David has been serving Saul for a while. But this is probably, my opinion, I don't know, my interpretation could be wrong, about, um, about those rewards that were promised to the victor of the battle. So if we go back in verse... 25. It says, The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So he's like, Who's your dad again? Because what that basically means is that they get a lifetime tax exemption. And do you know who else doesn't pay taxes in Israel? The king's family. They're the only ones who don't pay taxes. And so you see here, that even in this, that God is still in the process of elevating David's status. Not only does he give David victory and the people of Israel victory over their enemies, not only does he deliver them from this great harm, but he's preparing the way for David. He's making David more and more like a king every step of the way. Okay, And so we're going to see in this next section how much the people love David. They love him. The Lord's king is favored and he's adored. And it starts inside Saul's own family. Verse 18, 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Okay. So a lot has been said about the relationship between David and Jonathan. And we don't have time to go into all of that here. Okay. So I'm just going to say this. At this moment in our culture, we have a tendency to kind of give a side eye to any close relationship between people of the same sex. And so this relationship in the Bible is often brought up as an example of how that kind of relationship is okay. But what is currently commonplace in our culture has not always been commonplace. And when we read the Bible, we need to read it as well as we are able with the same eyes that the people who it was originally written to would have understood it, okay? And they would not have seen it that way. Now, one of the things that I um, learned in studying this is that Jonathan was probably much older than David. Now, I've, I've always just pictured him the same age, like they're best buddies, best friends, right? But in reality, their relationship was probably more like a father and a son than like a best friend kind of relationship. And it kind of makes sense because if you keep reading 
and you, you can see that Saul took him that day. So he takes David from his father's house and it says he would not let him return home. So David, from this point forward, he doesn't go home again. Like his home is now in the king's home. And it's almost as if Jonathan is taking him under his wing, right? And you can see the way, how much Jonathan cared for him, how high his esteem was for him. If you keep reading in the next verses, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So it's maybe symbolic here of the fact that David is literally stepping into the shoes of the next heir, right? He's putting on the clothing, literally, like not of the next king. He is wearing Jonathan's clothes. And Jonathan, for his part, doesn't seem upset about it. He seems quite happy to do it. It seems to be a joy. Why? Because he loves David. He sees David. He sees him. And he loves him. And so it seems does everybody else. Verse 5, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people. Everyone's like, yes, that's a good guy. He should be in charge. Also good in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Oops. That's not good, right? Saul notices that everybody loves David. Like, he can't help but notice it, because everybody's like, this guy's awesome, love him. Right? He's not happy about it. Like, not in the least. Verse 8, Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Hmm. And Saul eyed David from that day on. Interesting. He sees David, perhaps for the first time, as who he really is. He quits looking at the outside and finally notices, hey, there's something special about this guy. He's maybe a little different than the rest of us. Something is going on here. Everybody loves David. Everybody except Saul. They're not down with him. And from this point forward, we see God stepping in to protect and abide with his king. David is protected from all of these murderous attempts that Saul starts why? Because God is with him. This is where that relationship between Saul and David takes a turn for the worst. Saul has now come full circle. At first he's like, oh, you're awesome. I love you. Please stay with me forever. And now he's like, get out of my sight. I don't want you near me. I'm going to send you to the front lines because maybe that way somebody will kill you. And I don't have to look at you anymore. I don't have to hear people singing about you. Like just, I want to be done with you. Right? So we, we've come a long way from you're awesome. Not so much anymore. As long as Saul couldn't really see David for who he was, then he was fine with him. But when he starts seeing, he's not okay anymore. So let's read verse 10 through 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from God, there it is again, rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, which that's creepy, right? I'm sitting here holding my spear. And Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. 
but David evaded him twice. Y'all, when I read this, I can't help but think, you know, there's a scene in Luke where um, Jesus makes some people mad and they pick up stones to stone him. And he just walks out of the crowd, like unharmed, untouched, perfectly fine, right? Because the Lord protects his king. That's what he does. You can't touch God's king because God protects him in a special way. So David escapes, but that scares Saul even more. Like, he's so not okay with that. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So why does God's presence with David make Saul afraid? What is he afraid of? That's the question. He's not afraid for Israel, that's for sure. He's not afraid for what it does to God's honor. He's afraid of a loss and status. He's afraid for how it affects him personally. This is about me and I'm the king. You know, he is holding on for dear life. Like every, like, like the robe is being ripped from his hand one string at a time. It is, he is just, he refuses to let go. Okay. So I want to let, let's go back and think about somebody else in first Samuel whose position and power was stripped away. Who else was judged in the same way? Eli. How did Eli respond? A little differently, right? He was like, mm, that's really bad. He kind of accepted Right. He accepted it. He didn't, I mean, but like, what are you going to do about it? He at least knew that you can't fight it. Saul continued to fight it. Refused to believe that God's will was stronger than his. Even now, even now, Saul is fighting it. So verse 13 through 16, he, this is when he first sends David into military service, um, tries to get him killed in that way, says he removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people did that work for Saul. Nope, backfired. David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. There it is again. Everybody loves David. For he went out and came in before them. So that doesn't work. So Saul thinks, hey, I'll try again. I'll get in to marry my daughter, Merab. And I'll tell him, go and fight valiantly for me and you can have my daughter. But David, for some reason, doesn't really seem interested in her very much. He's like, who am I? No, that's okay. Don't really want to marry her. And um, so she is given to somebody else. But... Saul has another daughter, right? And how did she feel about David? She loved him like everybody else. Have y'all noticed how many people are loving David here? <laughs> like David is amazing. This is a great lesson for Valentine's Day. Everybody loves David. So what happens? She loves him. Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Like you would think maybe that would not make him happy that somebody else around him likes him. But it makes him happy because he thinks, hey, I can use that. I can work with this. I know what to do. So what happens? Let's see. Um, apparently, uh, well, he tells David or he sends his messengers to tell David, you know, I've got this daughter. She really likes you. You could totally have her. And David is apparently a little short on cash. He's like, I can't pay up the bride price of a princess. I, I don't I can't do that. But he's good on skill. Like he's got skill. <laughs> He doesn't have cash. And so Saul's like, but that's okay. That's okay. You don't have, you don't have to pay me money. Just, just a hundred foreskins from Philistines. Like, that is so weird, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> like, can we just say that? 
That is weird. Oh, like, <laughs> oh, he does. And can you imagine what that delivery was like? I mean, not only does he get 100 foreskins, he gets 200. He's like, oh, I got this. I'm all over this, Saul. Here we go. So he delivers. So Saul, again, is like, oh, man. <laughs> because, y'all, let's be honest. Like, that's not exactly an easy thing to acquire. Yes, for sure. Like, I'm going to tell him to do this, and he will never survive it. Never, ever will he survive it. But God is with him and was okay, apparently, with the price. So David has success, and he delivers the 200. Saul's schemes are thwarted. And so then (laughs) he's like, okay, this isn't working. Like, these subtle attempts to get rid of him, that like, we not working. So then instead of like being subtle about it, he just comes right out with it. Verse 19, one Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son and to all his servants. So they should kill David. He's like, Hey, one of you needs to get rid of David, please. Now would be good. Right. But what happens? How does Jonathan feel about that? He loves David and he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So Jonathan hears and he calls him out. He talks him out of it. He's like, Hey, why would you want to kill David? Like he's your ally. He has saved all of us in battle more than once. You know, he is our deliverer. He he doesn't deserve to die. Right. And Saul agrees. He surprisingly in verses six through seven of chapter 19, Saul agrees. He relents. He says, okay, you're right. I won't kill him. As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. But how long does that last? Not very Again, Saul is doing the creepy thing at home alone with his spear. He's hanging out. There's war again. David went and had success again. The harmful spirit of the Lord comes to Saul again. He's sitting in his house with his spear again. And David was playing the liar again. And Saul sought to pin him to the wall again. And David fled and escaped again. Right? So here we are again with the spear, not done work this time either. And then we have this whole story, right? This, this little, he's like, okay, no, this is working. Nobody will kill him outright. I can't kill him outright. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to hire some assassins to go and wait for him outside his house. And when he leaves to come to work in the morning, they'll just take care of him for me. Right. But how does that work out? Does, is that a good one? Good plan? Not a good plan. Right. So what happens this time? Who thwarts the plan this time? David's wife, Saul's daughter. So Saul's own daughter, David, David, you know, he, he comes home and she's like, hey, you got to leave. Like my dad's going to kill you. You've got to go. She helps him sneak out the window. Does that sound familiar? Any other Bible stories? A woman helping men sneak out the window. Rahab, that's right. Helping the spies sneak out of Jericho, right? And in this same way that Rahab lied to the men of her town who came and were like, hey, were the spies here? Rahab's like, nope, not here. What does Michael do? She also maybe perhaps deceives them a little bit, saying, well, he threatened to kill me if I didn't let him go. So here's the thing. Um, The text doesn't pass any commentary on her actions about her methods. Doesn't say, hey, she shouldn't have lied. That's against the Ten Commandments. Should not have done that. Doesn't, doesn't say anything about that. It's more concerned here. or It only presents the fact 
that she was more concerned with preserving David's life than anything else. And so when it came right down to it and her loyalties were divided, she chose God's side against her father's. And that's the point that the text makes there. So verse 18, David fled and escaped again. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him everything that Saul had done to him. He's like, Samuel, help me out. Listen to what has happened to me since you came and anointed me. Why did you do that to me? No, that's not what David says. That's not what he says. Okay. So David goes to Samuel. And in the following verses, Saul hears about it. He sends not one, not two, but three groups of messengers messengers, to come and get David. But what happens? They join the prophets. They're like, hey, I'm going to prophesy. How do y'all envision that? I'm sorry. They, they started prophesying. Like, to me, it's all Pentecostal and speaking in tongues. Like, I don't know how that looks in your head when you're reading. I, that, I don't know that that's correct, by the way. Like, that could be a totally incorrect assumption. But that is how I see it, envision it. Like, do, do, y'all, do y'all, like, see the action unfold when you're reading it? How does it look? Yeah, so they get caught up, whatever it is, in the presence of the Lord, totally distracted from their mission. God reorients them, and they end up not doing what Saul wanted them to do. So Saul is like, I mean, if you want a job done right, you got to do it yourself. And so he goes. He's like, I'm going to handle this. I'm, I've got this. They, they have obviously failed. But what happens to Saul? In verse 23, he, he went to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. It doesn't say that about any of the other people who went to prophesy. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? So we can't help, like we said earlier, you can't help but be reminded about that other time in 1 Samuel when Saul was caught up by the Spirit of God and led to prophesy. Then it was a sign of his anointing, but now, now it's a source of embarrassment. Um, He is literally stripped of his royal robe, and he loses his dignity before the people. And you see that no matter what Saul tries to do with David, he cannot stop what the Lord has started. He tries so hard to get the kingdom back, but he cannot stop the Lord because God is with David and his presence protects him from everything that Saul has to throw at him, spears included. So this is a sad place to end. You know, I feel like if this was an actual movie and we were watching it, it would be one of those things where you're like, Oh, that's so hard to watch. Like, it is hard to watch someone's unraveling. It is not an easy thing. But that is why it is such a relief to see David rising up. He wasn't perfect, not in any way. But man, like, what a contrast. What a contrast to how things were before. It's a ray of hope. Not just a ray of hope, but like, Blessing full sun after just relentless bad news and darkness and all the previous chapters. But more than that, 
you know, we could read David's story and just be like, well, what a great thing for Israel that was then, right? But David's story is not just about what happened in that time period then, because there's going to come another time in Israel's history when things are really bad, again, when they are without a king, again, and things are dark, God has been silent, again, things have gone from bad to worse, and in that time, another king is going to arise from the line of Jesse. But this one, unlike all the other kings who come before, would not falter. He wouldn't fail. He doesn't start off strong and then fizzle at the end. No. He would be perfect. He did not look like the king that they expected. He did not act like the king that they wanted. But he was exactly the king that we needed. He was a faithful king who delivered his people from their worst enemies, just like David. So for us then, what relevance does David's story have? And last week, I told you to ask yourself two questions when you're reading these things. Look for what God is doing and look for what the people do. How do they respond, right? So in these stories of David's life, we see him raising up a king. We see him using David to deliver his people. We see him protecting his king. We see him um, bringing David to a place where he is loved and adored. And those were all good and right things for the people to do at that time for their king. So for us then, maybe we should do the same. I think the first thing that these we can glean for application, I guess, from these chapters is that we need to open our eyes so that we can see Jesus. And I mean, like, see him, look for him in the unexpected places when you don't necessarily feel him or recognize his presence. He's still there. Because that is the promise of the gospel. Not that there won't be hard times, not that we won't face darkness, not that we won't find ourselves in the middle of chaos, but that God would be with us in it. So we need to look for him so that we can see him and recognize him when he's there. Next, you know, it wasn't the people who killed Goliath, but it was David. And so many times when you hear that, passage, I was like, go slay your giants. Be like David, right? And I mean, you can slay some giants if you want to, but you don't have to because God has done that for us. The people in that story were scared to death, um, but God gave them a deliverer. So for us then, let's trust our king who will deliver us from the worst of our fears. And there are so many, so many to name. Cancer, sickness, the loss of a child, the loss of a parent, infertility, job loss. Those are just a few. I mean, we could name all the things that feel like they are too big for us to face. But God has not left us to face those things on our own. He never intended us to. 
He gives us a deliverer who fights those battles for us. And so in those moments, we need to remember what David said, that the battle is the Lord's. We can trust him and we can draw courage from him because he has always been faithful. He's still faithful even when there's a giant in front of you. So when the people saw how David had saved him, saved them, they rejoiced. When they realized how he had delivered them from their worst enemies, they responded in joy. So let's be a people who take joy in the salvation that God has worked for us. Jesus has saved us from a faith that is worse than a giant, a faith worse than death. He's delivered us from sin. He has claimed victory over death. He has promised us an inheritance with him in eternity that is imperishable. It's undefiled and it is unfading and it's waiting for us. And that's a reason for us to sing. We can get so caught up in looking at the giants that we forget to sing. We lose our joy. But let's sing his praises to anyone and everyone who will listen, even those who don't want to hear it. Let's be quick to show and tell the world how much we love Jesus because of what he has done for us. And then finally, the last thing I think that we can learn, especially from Jonathan and Michael, is that when they had to make the hard choice between standing with David or standing with their father, they chose God's side. So when we get into those situations where our loyalty is divided... Which side do we land on? Are you willing to stand up for the Lord in the face of opposition? Or do you sit quietly by and keep your mouth shut? When it's a family member whose lifestyle choices um, don't honor the Lord. Or worse, a family member who ridicules you for your faith. Or a friend um, who's making some bad choices. What do you do when you face the hard choice and you have to pick a side? Where do you land? So as we leave here and go through our week, let's try to remember that God is good and merciful to us and that he doesn't leave us alone in our misery and in darkness, but that he has sent, he has sent us a deliverer like Jesus. So let's be the people who submit to his reign and rule, who rejoice in his presence, and who give honor and glory to him day in and day out. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the goodness and mercy you have shown us in sending us a king like Jesus. Lord, he is exactly the king that we needed. God, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who honor you in all that we do, loyal subjects to your throne, who Point people to the King day in and day out. Father, as we go now to our regular, ordinary lives, God, I pray that you would just continue to work these truths into our heart. God, that as we study your word this coming week, Lord, that you would faithfully speak to us through it, God, that we would see you more clearly, that we would know you, Lord, and that you would change us through it. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.